The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Within 15 years, it will be possible to contain the entire world of Homo sapiens in a matchbox. Hello. The classic toast has always been that we may live in interesting times, but surely peace would be preferable to chaos. As scientific progress reaches for power and the fossilization of old institutions all move further from common ground, what hope is there for us, the common clay of the civilized world? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and an eighth of a millimeter square, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's lecture covers Britannia Hospital, the 1982 satire directed by Lindsay Anderson and starring a cast led by Leonard Rossiter, Malcolm McDowell, Joan Plowright and Graham Crowden. My guest is Anthony Malone, and you join us in the remains of a cottage hospital, now windswept and fly-blown. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm good. Good. This podcast, obviously, is going to be released after the 31st of October. Ah. After the deadline for oh, Brexit. Okay. What will have happened by that point at the moment, listener, is a matter of conjecture. I think That's putting it politely. Anthony, you and I are both very hopeful that the whole thing will just sort of magically I'd like disappear. a nuclear strike on Westminster at the moment. Um, have I... I, I, work, <laughs> I work near there. That's not very nice. Well, once you've been evacuated, obviously. But, yeah. Um... Oh, I'll, 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 don't worry. I'll evacuate myself <laughs> very quickly. Yes. Um, but oh, I didn't, I didn't realise you were going to do it um, post-departure day. Yes. That's... Um, that's an interesting... So, listener, and our future selves, indeed, I hope all is well. It almost <laughs> certainly won't be. <laughs> Let's not have any of that pessimism now. Okay. Okay. You're more of a sunnier character than I am, Jeremy. That's that's the. Well, I, that's I how have, we work well together. I have, I have an anxiety disorder, so I have to stay sunny <laughs> or... It's, I, it's not good that you, the, the you're the sunnier character out. with the anxiety disorder, and I'm not... <laughs> That's because you live in your little filter bubble. Damn right I do. I don't have that luxury. You've got to engage, have you? I have That's to, your job, isn't it? I'm bombarded you? by news. That's not good. No wonder you've got to... The, the listener doesn't know what my job is. Well, that's because you can't tell anyone what your job is. I've well, tried to get it out of you on many occasions, but you just say, I, I can't talk about I that. I told you what it is off the rack. You've t- the... you told me the cover story. That's not a cover story. No one I, believes that. It really that. is that dull. Yeah, no, no one believes that. We've seen you going into that building on the Thames, through the sea. It's not on the Thames. Driving your Lotus into that car. It's park. in the most boring, remote place in central London. It's deliberately designed to be as annoying and dull as possible. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the circus that you've been talking about. I'm not in the circus. Yeah. Oh wait, shut up, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Britannia Hospital, Lindsay Anderson's 1982 uh, comedy. So it's so it purports to be. How funny is this comedy? Is it not relentlessly depressing and horrible? 
Shall I tell you the number of laughs I I had during the watch of this film? Do tell. None. Oh, really? No, there are no jokes in this film. And yet, I have the poster in front of me. There's a lot of humour, but it's very dark and grim. And I know what you mean about the poster. Rex Reed says it's devastatingly funny. Rex Reed is a weirdo. Side-splitting says Guy Flatley of Cosmopolitan magazine, who he... Well, it's Cosmo. I mean, and the the poster is definitely the poster is like a carry on film. It, it absolutely is a carry on film, and carry on is clearly an influence on on this film. I've got the other poster here. How does that look? Yeah, I've seen. Now that it's it, just the one with the headless corpse, obviously, the, the headless corpse waving the Union flag. Yeah, with the caption, "Will they ever recover?" Which, frankly, could be on the tube now. Now, tell me why you you suggested that I watch this film. Cinema Limbo is a form for re-evaluation. Do you believe this film... Well, I believe this film has not had the chance for re-evaluation. Because as you and I both discovered, it's not actually commercially available in the UK. I was utterly unaware of the existence of this film. Really? And I I must confess that I know very little about Lindsay Anderson. Have you seen the two previous films in the trilogy? I have not. Well, that's a mistake, isn't it? Well, I I did do some cursory research on, on viewing... The, um, the curiosity that is Britannia Hospital. And I found a number of interesting facts. I obviously found out this was the third part of a very loose trilogy. And I found out that people revered Lindsay Anderson and saw him as something of a countercultural figure. I think that he was probably better off in the theatre, in my opinion. For many years, I've avoided Lindsay Anderson because when I was growing up, A Clockwork Orange had this real aura of radiation around it of being this fearsome banned film and when I saw A Clockwork Orange there's a particular scene in it which I found really disturbing, the one where they're persecuting the woman on the stage I just found that really horrible so any film with Malcolm McDowell in it was a bit off-piste for me for a long time and hence I didn't really go near any of Lindsay Anderson's work. I'll tell you the one thing I was expecting when I went into this film and that was a film which frankly was more more professionally put together. It looks like a sitcom, this film. It does have a it's lot a of comedy cheap. actors. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's got... Um, I mean, it is easier to say who isn't in this film. Yeah. The cast is bonkers. Any film where you've got Robert Asquith sharing dialogue with Dame Joan Plowright... Yes. And they're, and they're actually as equals in the film. Indeed. Or you have um, Valentine Dial... And, I know. and um, Kevin Lloyd from The Bill, who gets run over. And the guy who plays Kane from Dragonfire. Edward Peel. Edward Peel, in a tiny blink and you'll miss it performance. Sir Alan Bates, in a scene where he's unconscious the entire time and then has his head cut off. And then Arthur Lone. Oh, is he? Is he the corpse? That's yeah. interesting. I just didn't spot that. Arthur Lone, what I believe was his final um, performance. I, I believe so, yes. A, and a slightly difficult one to watch, comparing the, considering the nature of it. This film has tone problems. On the one hand, there's kitchen sink realism. The start of the film is as grim as threads, in my opinion. And then we go into a, a degree of a kitchen sink realism, and then by the end we're in sort of amazing tales SF pulp territory with, well, let's let's keep it for the end, but Well, the previous two films in the trilogy were If in 1968, 
and Oh Lucky Man in 1973. And the three films together chart a very loose story of the character of Nick Travis, played by McDowell. In the first film, it's set in a public school, and it's a story of uh, repression and rebellion of of a very uh, calcified society that fosters uh, this uh, revolution. And it ends with a a full-on gun battle on the last day of term. The second film, Oh Lucky Man, is widely regarded as a masterpiece. Uh, it's <laughs> you can watch the, a Blu-ray rip in its entirety on YouTube, oh. which is just there. Um, okay. And I watched it and I thought, wow, this is not a very good film. <laughs> oh really? It's three hours long. Oh god. It has musical interludes by Alan Price, right? I believe of the Small Faces, and it's about Mick um, making his way in the adult world. Uh, he becomes a travelling salesman for a coffee company. Mm. gets involved in all kinds of bizarre escapades, uh, medical experiments, military interrogations. Uh, He winds up working for a ruthless industrialist and winds up going to prison where he becomes a uh, born-again humanist and it winds up with him auditioning to be in the film itself. And then at the end there's a big dance party for all the actors and it's completely deranged. Mm. It has an amazing cast... um, Graham Crowden as the bizarre doctor. Arthur Lowe plays several characters. Helen Mirren. Mm. Um, Peter Jeffrey, who plays the headmaster in If and is in Britannia Hospital. Uh, Anderson liked to reuse actors. He certainly did, yeah. I do find it str- And Arthur Lowe is in If as well. I find it very odd that Arthur Lowe is in all three films because Lowe was a very conservative, traditional type and yet is in these really bluntly... <laughs> Countercultural movies, and seems and he's he's very good in No Lucky Man because he's playing like a, a, a sleazy um, strip club manager at the same time as he was playing Captain Mannering. And he, the parts couldn't be more different, but he's totally believable because he's all this sort of sort of he looks oily. Yes, I've always found him a little a, a strange strange uh, man to watch on the screen. Define countercultural. Um. Perhaps countercultural is the wrong word, but certainly in opposition to the prevailing mood in society. Because I, I was aware Anderson is seen as a, a kind of countercultural figure. But in my opinion, Britannia Hospital doesn't do anything that Carry On Up the Kyber did in 1968. Think of the last dinner scene in Carry On Up the Kyber. Riots outside, the aristocracy pretending nothing's happening. That's the political point he's trying to make. And I just think, this isn't radical, what you're saying. The only radical thing about Britannia Hospital is that he has a pop at everybody. That's the thing. He... That's a different message. Because the the upper classes, it's not so much that in Carrying Up the Cover, there's a battle going on outside. Hmm. And the upper classes are refusing to acknowledge that because they're above these sorts of things. But when they took on trade unions, it was very bluntly anti-trade union. And that's why Carry On At Your Convenience was a flop, because it wasn't playing to the traditionally working class Carry On audience, even though the film was quite funny. Yes, I agree. And I think, what's the film, the Carry On film, where at the end they sabotage the hippie? Is it Carry On Camping? Yes. Because that was, now. I'd say now, that's where you see the Carry On films going into decline, because they're not on the side of 
of the young and modernity and the actual counterculturalists. They are the status quo. The audiences of, of Sid James's age. Yeah, probably would have been on this, on his side. And when Sid James died in 1974, that was the end of the carry-ons because there was nowhere else for them to go. Mm. With Britannia Hospital, it's pointing at both sides and saying, you're both wrong. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's quite pointed in the... I noticed uh, when the racism rears its head, initially I thought, ah, that's he's just having a pop at the upper classes and uh, and showing them to be morally bankrupt. And then he has dinner ladies starting to have a, a pop. Dinner ladies who are... Uh, it's a multicultural group, that's, um, that group downstairs doing all the food. But then I started to realise, actually, he's just an equal opportunities grump. <laughs> he he just hates every he just thinks nobody is right in this film and it just about saves it at the end with the bizarro crackers ending where we get into um, brain in a jar territory where he's panning across people's faces and i think you could make an argument that he's he's saying we can have the the future of the microchip or you can have the the variability of people so he so I kind of think you can make an argument for that. but I don't want to jump to the ending quite yet. Okay. But I disagree with everything you've just said. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this one. <laughs> um, the movie starts with a hospital picket line at dawn. It's incredibly grim, this start. Yeah. I mean, they are marching around. It actually starts on a shot of uh, the Houses of Parliament. So, and bear in mind, I, had, I was literally unaware of this film's existence... And this was the first ever watch. So I didn't know what I was getting into here at all. Look at that look on your face. That satisfaction. Going good. That's the way I like it. So I thought, oh, is this a political film? Which is actually the right call to make. But I didn't, obviously I wasn't prepared for where it goes. Yeah, they're marching up and down and protesting outside this hospital. I believe Anderson got this idea, the central idea of this for some um, blockade against Charing Cross hospitals. Yes, that's right. And pretty much immediately... You can start spotting faces. Um, well, an ambulance tries to get through and is stopped at the checkpoint, and they only let the ambulance through because the person inside only has a few minutes to live. Yeah. Um, Robbie Coltrane is one of the um, people in the pickets. And this was after... I don't know, I don't think it was. Was it 82? 82 or 83? I think it's 82. All right, so then it would be before the Comic Strip Presents started. And his future cracker wife is in this. <laughs> he said. So you want to rephrase that, don't his, you? His future wife. From cracker. From cracker. Barbara Flynn. Yeah. Oh, yes. She's one of the nurses in this. Oh, yes, so she is. It is very grim. Yes, yeah, so this poor guy's dragged up. Bear in mind, by the way, I've recently had to take my dad into hospital for uh, about 10 days. So mm. I've had recent experience of, of the current NHS. And uh, and the good things and the bad things of this. So suddenly watching this film, postcard from 1982, it's a wonder the NHS got out of 1982, considering Anderson's depiction of it. So they drag this poor guy in. The porters are playing cards. The the nurse is refusing to... She's smoking. She's smoking, refusing to accept her, uh, him in because she's about to come off shift. Yeah. And they wind up just leaving him uh, yeah. in the... Um, in the hallway, and the you, credits roll and over you, the and top, you, and you hear him breathe his last. Yes, and he dies just unattended, and the credits roll with a very mournful version of Rule Britannia. And so it's like you know straight away mm. 
where this is going to be going. Yes, pretty much. It's, um, I like that it's, it's not trying to trick you. Say, no, we actually mean this right from the off. <laughs> I mean, what a different cinematic landscape to have this on your local cinema. I mean, this didn't do very well, unfortunately, this film, and it was critically no, it, lambasted, it pretty, wasn't it? it pretty much destroyed Anderson's career. Yeah. So it's, it's incredibly big. Just one other little face in the crowd there. One of the three union guys is the guy that Marion Ravenwood drinks under the table in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Blimey. He'd already done that by this point, of course, in 81. Oh, really? Oh, I'm not good on dates, but yeah, he's he's very recognisable if you know that scene inside out and back. I'm surprised, actually, there, there aren't... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The little mystery. You know, the one who smiles as he collapses to one side. And... Meanwhile, a car tears into the hospital ground, straight past the picket. They rush across the central quad uh, to try and get in front of him. And actually, one of the protesters is hit and knocked down by the car. And the, the driver looks quite startled and worried until we cut the close-up and he isn't. Well, there are, there are two prangs, basically. There's one going through the gate, which is the one that made me shout out loud and go, oh, my God. And then when he gets around the other side, I recognise this was the moment that you tweeted in shock. Um, yeah. Because you're quite right. I think it's Morris Reeves, isn't it, from um, our friend from... No, it's Kevin Lloyd. Oh, is it? Later, Tosh lines in the bill. Oh, right. But yeah, this guy gets... I, he does throw himself onto the bonnet of the car, but it's... This a stuntman, surely. Nope. Been, for God's sake. It looks as though he's running across the grass, he's trying to come to a stop, but he, he's got too much momentum, so he keeps going. Yeah, yeah. And he just sort of jumps and is, is hit from behind by the, the car, and it just sort of goes on the back of his knees, so it's... It's a nasty bump. It but really he, is. he immediately gets up and, and walks around and it's fine. And continues the scene. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he was a um, chronic alcoholic might have oh. softened the blow because Kevin Lloyd drank himself to death. Dear God. Um, which is why he was fired from the bill and died a week later. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He would just turn up drunk all the time. But the driver is actually Graham Crowden. You can see it's him quite clearly. Oh, Graham and, Crowden. And the, the shot of, in the, the long shot where you can see that he's, he's mm. hit Lloyd, he looks genuinely horrified. <laughs> because he just dropped completely out of character. Well, he thinks he's about to get banged up. <laughs> um, but we cut to close-up, and it's Professor Miller from the previous two films. Um, he was a history teacher in If, right. and only has one scene, and is actually maybe the most normal character in the film. In Britannia Hospital in, or If? In, in If. Okay. He cycles into his classroom, starts the lesson... Hands out homework from during the holiday by just throwing it at people across the room. And then starts talking about whatever the subject is at hand and is trying to get an intellectual response from the students. But they they make no response to his, his sort of... Is he meant to be the same character throughout this trilogy? He's got the same name. How, what's a history teacher doing conducting well, brain transplants? Well, that's the thing. I mean... There are three films, and between them, Arthur the Low plays six or seven characters. Yeah. So, I suspect that Anderson just liked working with his group of uh, lovey chums. Anderson here. Anderson comes out of fringe style theatre, mm. where you would have actors playing multiple roles in each show, and it's just it's it's not meant to say anything other than this is sort of all part of one connected society. So the idea is that these, I think, the different success. I mean, certainly the. The version of Professor Miller in Oh Lucky Man could easily be exactly the same person because he's doing horrifying medical experiments in that. 
he say grafts a human head onto a sheep. Lovely. Um, and plans to do something to Mick Travis until he discovers the human head grafted onto a sheep, screams, leaps out of a window and steals a bike and runs away. <laughs> and then gets picked up by some uh, hippie musicians for, uh, with Helen Mirren as a groupie and then goes off with them for a Another half hour of the movie. Yes, this it's, it's a really disjointed film. It definitely <laughs> sounds like it's coming from the same mind that that brought you or would bring you Britannia Hospital. It's Kevin. It's um, Malcolm McDowell's only screenwriting credit. Oh, he claims that it was based on his life because yeah. he started. His, he started out as a coffee salesman in real life. Because have you have you um, seen or come across McDowell's one man show about Anderson? No. It's called Never Apologize. Oh yes, and McDowell clearly revered Anderson, and mm-hmm. Anderson was a mentor figure. And there's some talk, I think, from McDowell himself that actually it was it was not just platonic, certainly on Anderson's side. That he basically fell in love with his leading men, which is why. Um, which is why uh, he cast Leonard Rossiter in this one. Yes, a Rossiter. We'll get to Leonard Rossiter, but McDowell is is full on fanboy of Lindsay Anderson, but I think there's also sort of a lot of theatre stuff going on there as well. In my opinion, the films don't don't warrant it. If you were just to judge Anderson on this one film, you'd go, well, he should be... Actually, what I did think about this was a lot of it reminded me of um, Russell T. Davis' Doctor Who, the sort of the political side of it, oh, um, the, the kitchen sink stuff, and then the bonkers fantasy stuff. I thought it was probably a bit pressing like that, and then Russell T. Davis can bolt a lot more humour into it, and it's a bit more... throw a bit more money at it. And his... Ross, uh, Davis's background in soap opera as exactly. well means he's he's always very engaged in the emotional lives of his characters. Yeah, and he's got political awareness. Yes, uh, left leaning. So, yeah, I've got really big vibes about that. And when the uh, when we get to the hospital DJ, I started thinking about Cartmel era Doctor Who, or, or um, yes. you know that's that sort of figure. And Cartmel's wish to bring down the government with Doctor Who, that sort of radical aspiration, political mm. aspiration for the show. So I don't think this thing exists in a, in, a, in a vacuum. It's not a total one-off and then abandoned. It, it, it's of a piece with a certain way that culture was going. I can imagine this as being one of the, the Doctor Who New Adventure novels. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The ones that yeah. were really dark and weird because now they could afford to be because they're only in print. Yes, yeah, definitely. And then, of course, you've got Sol Deed from the Horns of Nymon running around in it. Oh, it's, I mean, it's just a cavalcade <laughs> of Doctor Who people. It's a chocolate box of, of faces you recognise. You're just constantly going, oh, it's that guy. But anyway, Crowden, or Professor Miller, has got some very swanky offices. I, I really love that next to this very beautiful old sort of cottage hospital type building is this monstrous skyscraper. It really literally is. Literally next door. Now, I thought this is, has to be a model, but it's a heck of a... It's a... It's a heck of a model. It looks it's, like it's just been bolted onto the side of the... It's, a, it's real, I believe. It's actually real. They found something that looks like that. I can't say I'm totally surprised by that, but it is horrible. And quite right that it should be the headquarters for the um, the, the crazy. It's uh, To give it its full name, it's the Miller Centre for Advanced Surgical Science in association with Banzai Chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> Which gives you a hint about the uh, the sensibilities going on here. Yeah, he, he dips inside. It's a very sterile place. It looks like sort of... I've been to GlaxoSmithKline. Their HQ that I went to was a huge, great big country house. And inside, it's very much like the inside of Professor Miller's HQ. It's all very bland office block type stuff. That doesn't seem unreasonable. But it's GlaxoSmithKline. In um, the, the Miller Centre, it's definitely meant to be a technocrat wish fulfillment, where he's... 
he, op- he he gets in by a voice recognition code, and his code is Overlord. Yes. And everything's voice activated, and there's lasers, and it's impersonal, it's sterile, super um, up to date. Yes, computers. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-two computers. When you when you get later on, there's a wonderful shot of one of the characters who's rung up by Leonard Roster in his single room studio flat, full of stuff. Yeah, and it's wonderful. It's he's a model. He's doing model airplanes. He's got a fish tank. It's full of humanity. This place is very cold and sterile. Although um, Overlord Professor Miller does get a nice snog uh, from, from uh, Macmillan, and I really sensed when. Crowden went in for the kids <laughs> that he was stealing himself. He he makes a bit of a meal of it, but obviously there's a lot. There's meant to be passion between these two, and that turns out to be a plot thing. What did you think of the sound on your copy of Britannia Hospital? Well, uh, you obtained a copy online of the film, didn't you? Through you found through s- strange nefarious yeah. means. I take mine off uh, London Live. The, uh, the, po- the popular channel watched by literally several people. So your copy sounded okay and didn't look like it was wrapped in chips? It was fine. It is surprising that it's... I mean, I, it's very odd that Oh Lucky Man isn't in print. That was released on DVD, but it's no longer available. Where's the Lindsay box set? Where's his oeuvre? Where's, where's the, you know... Well, it's, uh, there's probably, as usual, an issue, an issue of yeah. the lines being spread out. Um, if has had a... Masters of Cinema Blu-ray release. Mm. It's very nice. It has some of his early um, short films on there. Uh, That's a a really nice set. But no sign of A Lucky Man, no sign of Britannia Hospital. I'm not even sure that this sporting life has had Mm. uh, a a prestige release, which it deserves. Mm. That's a a very good film. And it's pretty much a key angry young man kitchen sink realism um, uh, film. I would have thought that would have been spruced up for Blu-ray. I'm sure they'll get around with it. It may have been, but I haven't seen it around. Yeah. It's the sort of thing that I thought I would have noticed. What do you make about that whole seam of uh, British films there? That sort of John Osborne, look back in anger, Richard Harris? My knowledge of them is rather limited. I, I do like the story that uh, Laurence Olivier saw look back in anger and immediately understood that the British theatre was changing. Mm. And it was changing while he was watching, and he couldn't afford to be left behind when he was still, do, you know, still blacking up to play Othello. So he approached John Osborne and said, "Write something for me. I don't care what it is or what it's about. Something that for, for a lead role for me." And Osborne wrote the Entertainer, which is, it's it's about that kind of passing of the age mm. that you know, as late as whenever it was, nineteen sixty-one or so, Music Hall is dead. And Archie Rice is just trying to keep it alive, and there's no one turning up to see these shows. And so that was... It was about the transition from post-war into the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And with Britannia Hospital, Anderson is trying to transition from that 1960s hangover into the 1980s, the age of greed, Mm -hmm. Thatcherism, avarice... And he also knows, I think, in the process that the movie itself is basically a suicide note. There's a prescience to it because of the miners' strike coming down the line in the 80s. All the shots of the cops beating up the protesters. Well, we had the miners' strikes, several of them, in the 70s. So that was mm. looking 
as much backwards as forwards. Mm. Um, but the technocracy, yes, definitely, is I think very modern. the The idea of um, privatization of healthcare, yeah, there isn't a Thatcher figure in the script in the in the film, but there is an embodiment of traditionalism. And when that character is introduced, she is literally in a glass case. Yes, and it's this film. It's a weird little early eighties themeette of the desire, particularly in British films, James Bond for your eyes only. I'm thinking of of weeding in a public figure as a gag to, to um, and and they are suddenly placed into the fictional world. And it's a bit Stanley Baxter. So you know Thatcher slapping away Dennis's hands from the cookies oh, in. Um, Furies only, and then this, and and then this would go on and on into the nineties with Naked Gun and all of that. It, it's a matter of tone. I mean, it annoys me in Furies only because Furies only is generally a fairly straight, mm. serious spy movie, and with, then it loses with subplots about the, the the personal cost of revenge and that sort of thing. And then they get the comedy scene at the end. You know, it, it would have been better if that tag bit had been on the end of Moonraker, which is you know a larger than life yes. space adventure. And you can have the, the funny... I mean, we lose the cue line about yes, attempting re But it would be all of a piece. And doing that kind of thing in Naked Guy, because it's, it's silly and it's meant to be fun and daft. Yeah. But pretending hospital it wants to say something. So wheeling in, literally wheeling in this ancient, wizened figure. And it's... it's we will we'll, we will get to it, but it's a brilliant impersonator. I mean, squint, and it could actually be the real uh, Queen Mum. I'm glad you said Queen Mum, because it took me quite a while to work out <laughs> that it was supposed to be her. I kept thinking it was supposed to be the Queen. Well, the actual Queen, no, no, it's definitely... But uh, it, it looks a lot like Queen It is Queen scary Mother. like her. I read a biography of John Osborne, and I've got a couple of collections of his essays. Spiky Guy. Oh, yeah, apparently he was... A bit of a nightmare. Oh god, yeah. And one I mean, key thing I always they were called angry young men for a reason. Yeah, I remember him saying a piece of advice to writers once. He said, "Don't get married; it's a distraction from the work," uh, which I, made me take against him. Wasn't he gay? I think he was. I mean, he could be speak. He could be speaking a married and inverted commas. Yes, I think there was that going. Don't on. settle down. Yeah, which, um, I think different era is probably the the yeah. safest way to describe that. And I've never really particularly liked the, the the angry young men stuff. I think is valuable as a social change in cinema, but it's not something I turn to a lot. The film of the year that I would turn to is probably The Servant. Um, oh yes, which I think is really great, and really is that sort of working class guy bringing down the the status quo from the decadent, idle rich. Would you say then that Harold Pinter was a vet that was part of the angry young men movement? Yes. Yeah, when he wasn't being a Yeti, I believe, or one of the um, the actors oh, in. Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> and I've been to see uh, about must be about three or four years ago now. I went to see a Pinter at the theatre with my sister, mainly because um, Kristen's got Thomas was in it, and she was I going see. to marry me one day. And I have to say, I was bored off my socks. And Pinter's fond of the irrational emotional outburst. Suddenly, someone will just go completely bonkers, and then disappear into silences and pauses and stuff like that. So I didn't really have a great time with that. And, yeah, Pinter doesn't really do much for me, I have to say. So it's a... What about Beckett? I do like a bit of Beckett, actually. And I got into 
William, uh, William Samuel Beckett when there was that um, attempt on TV to film all the plays. Oh yeah, and there were some. I mean, literally, even the ones which are about you know a minute long. And I, I thought that some of them were really interested. I mean, I liked Not I, which is really strange. Um, the one with the just the mouth, just the yeah. mouth. They got some great. Um, I think it's Julianne Moore who does that. Yeah, but they, the staging was wrong. Well, I've never seen the. I've never seen it live. I, mean, I think it's meant to be just a spotlight. It, you're you're not meant to see any part of her other than the mouth. But mm. you actually, she actually see her walking onto the set and sitting down, and that, that negates the whole point of the production. Mm. It's just supposed to be a disembodied mouth. They did um, Breath, the shortest play, where the stage directions are so specific that you know exactly to the second how long the play is supposed to be. It is 35 seconds long. It features no characters and no dialogue. And it was directed by Damien Hirst. Fantastic. Yeah, I must revisit them. Annoyingly, I don't think you can buy the box set. I think it's only available to academic institutions. Well, that's just bloody ridiculous. I know. But I then, know. that uh, that's uh, there's another instance of that. There's a brilliant Horizon special called Life Story, which has got Tim Pickett-Smith in it and Jeff Goldblum, and it's Watson and Crick and the, them figuring out the structure of DNA. That's not available. You, it's only available to um, academic institutions, much to my annoyance. It's excellent, that drama, and it made me want to do science. got me interested in DNA. So, yeah, we're, we're not talking about Britannia Hospital, unfortunately. We're talking about its influences. I'm still on page one of my notes. <laughs> um, well, Miller is working on several projects uh, at his institution, um, to begin with, he says that uh, one of the buttocks needs to be replaced on one of their projects. And that he's also working on Genesis. Yes. And Genesis is perfect. What Genesis is, is very mysterious. The, na yeah, the uh, nature of it is we're just shown a black pyramid. Yes. About well, there are body parts in freezers. That's not necessarily part of Genesis, though. We're not entirely sure whether these are replacements for maybe the hospital or uh, or just specimens, but you're quite right. He's very dismissive to the people around him. He called the, the guys on the, the picket line insects. When he gets into a lift with McDowell and Chum, they, they say to each other, we're less than dust to him. And the people in authority in this film, they are evil because they have poor social skills. They treat everyone around them like shit, whereas... The good guys have good social skills and uh, manage to band together. So uh, there's a lot of, of upper-class sneering at the proles, of, of telling their nurses to get lost. Standard stuff, really. The private patients in the hospital... Oh, they're horrible. Are, they're caricatures. Well, they are, they? yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I would say that a lot, of the, a lot of the characters in the film are caricatures yeah. because it's a convenient shortcut... This isn't meant to be realistic in any way. So if we're doing all these kind of very heightened over-the-top scenarios, it seems only reasonable that you have these caricatured specimens. So the manager of the hospital is Leonard Rossiter. Because who else are you going to cast? Mm. He's perfect. But I think the problem is, is that it subtracts from his political statement, whatever the political statement he's trying to make here. Because he, he, you're quite right. It's all very big, and it's all borderline carry-on. But you sense... You, my my suspicion is that Anderson went to all of his theatre cronies and went, this is a little bit of fluff, we've whooshed up a script, let's have some fun together and we'll get a film out at the end of it. And I think that was the main intention. There wasn't some great big... This film is not fun. No, but it's it's a... We'll have fun making it. 
I mean, how on earth will you get Joan Plowright to do this if she'd actually properly read the script? She's in Last Action Hero. Joan Plowright is in Last Action Hero. I didn't yeah, know. My she God. plays the the kid's English teacher, and she's introducing um, Olivier's Hamlet, and then the kid imagines that it's Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Hamlet. Joan Plowright had a great sense of humour. She has. She's still around. What am I talking about? Yeah. Well, so I think she knew full well what she was doing mm. because she would have had to read the script of the final scene and thought, oh, this, that's where this is going. Yeah, I wonder if the audience is in the same room. Uh, I, I think uh, if they'd asked nicely and found a role for him, Olivier would have been in this. Probably. I mean, he would have been quite happy to pick up a cheque for a day lying in bed doing... By this stage, Olivier work. definitely was... I think it was Michael Caine who, who said to him, look, you should do some populist stuff to make some money. He'd done Marathon Man. Actually, he'd done uh, The Boys from Brazil. It was like the, the most recent big project he did. And then he did Inchon, which was not a hit. And you, I've, I've wanted to do Inchon on this podcast. You cannot find a copy of it. You, it's not allowed. It's everything being burned. Um, it, the copyright is owned by the Moonies. What? It was funded by the Moonies. Oh my god. Did you not know this? No, I did not. Oh, well. It okay, was. leave me to uh, discover that one on my own. Inchon, is that the name of the film? Yeah, it's a Korean war movie. And he plays MacArthur. Right, okay. Um, Does it sound like a barrel of laughs. I think he, uh, Olivia was in Brideshead Revisited, which is about the same time as mm, the Tenny Hospital. Mm, mm. But that was only a, a relatively minor role. So he was doing stuff. Mm. And uh, his last role, his last role, funnily enough, was in Derek Jarman film, of all things. Yeah, really? Um, Jarman's the straightest film of his career, as it's least odd, was um, uh, a silent screen version of uh, Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. Oh, right. So it was sort of tableaus of scenes with, the, with Britten's music played over it. And yes, that Olivier, sounds like Derek Jarman. Olivier played an elderly wheelchair-bound soldier, remembering his experiences in the war. Have you seen Blue? No. Blue was huge when it it came out because Jarman's impending death was big news. So I remember that going out on Channel Four. Wasn't it? I believe it was simulcast on Radio Three. Yes, because it's a. It, I, I remember being in my bedroom at about the age of 17 or something with this blue screen and Jarman's oral soundscape coming here, there and everywhere. And I read, I think, his diaries when he was in Dungeness doing his gardens. Dungeness looks like the end of the world. Yes, it does. Yeah. And I think that's why he went there, to, to actually create a garden. I think that was the point. Mm. McDowell and Chum. Mick. I, I like that it's, he's maybe the biggest name in the cast that's casually introduced at the back of the yeah. scene with no introduction at all. He's just in the lift. <laughs> yes, there's no big entrance for this guy at all. Although there's the theatrical elements of this film in that there's a lot of walking in and out of rooms and people watching someone else come into a room, give the speech and walk out again. Yeah, There is unfortunately a lot of that. But Anderson was a big theatre guy. Malcolm McDowell really looks like an old boss of mine. And it used to really freak me out. <laughs> <laughs> think, think um, McDowell circa Star Trek, Star Trek Generations. Oh, when they had the white hair. Oh. Yeah, and well, he looks like a tortoise without his shell. That's the point where he starts playing bosses. He was in a series called Franklin and Bash, 
was about two young hotshot lawyers. And I love sort of, your, your details. It was mildly tongue-in-cheek, and he played the head of the law firm. And he was a sort of shark-like figure. Mm. So that he was allied with the good guys, but you knew he wasn't a good guy. Have you seen him in the Paul Bettany gangster film? Gangster um, number one? Yeah. He's fantastic in that. It's, it's reptilian, that opening. He's terrific in that. Yeah. It's... Um, <laughs> That's and to the extent that actually, I think, when it cuts to Paul Bessany, it's a bit of a disappointment. Because you think, no, I'd, I'd quite like some more time with uh, Malcolm McDowell being thoroughly reprehensible. But Paul Bessany's great in that movie. Yeah, That's he, a really yeah. terrific movie. Uh-huh. And that, I think that got dismissed because it was so, coming out not long after Lockstock. And they thought, oh, it's another Guns it's and Geezers movie. Far superior. But it's not. No, it's, it's, it's a very good gangster film, that. So uh, that's Mick Travis. Um, last scene... Uh, being uh, slapped in the face by Lindsay Anderson himself during auditions for a film. Now a television journalist. Indeed. And he travels up to the roof and gives a bit of his background to the man he's bribed to lower him down in his uh, window washer's cradle. Yeah, it's a slow reveal that McDowell is an investigative journalist and he's he's there on, on a story. And he's got a little sort of walkie-talkie thing which is quite sophisticated for 1982. Uh, and he's talking to his chums in a van parked out in the street. Yeah. And in the van <laughs> is none yes, other. Firstly, one of, one of those two actors is called Frank Grimes, <laughs> which is the name of Homer's enemy in The Simpsons. Really? The guy who winds up electrocuting himself. Oh, God. Who is just baffled that everyone indulges Homer because Homer is a complete waste of space. And was accidentally electrocuting himself, and then Homer sleeps through his funeral. <laughs> and it's it's the darkest, weirdest episode of The Simpsons. The the Simpsons scripts are very literate, so I wouldn't and, and they're movie aware. So that's, uh, that's not news, but, but I wouldn't be surprised. And the other actor has also been in The Simpsons because it's only Mark Bloody Hamill. I know. I mean, I had to I had to kind of like rub my eyes uh, when when I realised who this was. It looks like Mark Hamill. It is Mark Hamill post. Empire Strikes Back? Yes. This was, the, I think, the last thing he did before Return of the Jedi. Yeah, and it looks like he's had his accident. Yeah. Um, yeah, years earlier. And here he is in a tiny-budgeted Brit film. He's credited at the beginning of the movie, and like with several other people in the same screen. Yes, he is, isn't he? Yeah. Um, apparently, the original actor supposed for that role dropped out. Yes. And Hamill was just friends with McDowell. Um, well, as we know, Hamill's an all-round good egg and you know, I said, you want to do it come over and you know, film in the UK for a little bit yeah sure well you're probably quite expensive there because you know Star Wars and, oh never mind just pay my expenses fine so we did it for nothing and McDowell did it for nothing as well because by this point they were both quite big names yes and what transpires in this van this swapping of various strains of marijuana Afghan black it's nice to see that Hamill doesn't give a damn about his image <laughs> I know <laughs> it's not hero to the the youth of the the world and he's he's going to skate away from uh, doing that no, he's got no self-consciousness I've got a lot of time for Mark Hamill everyone likes Mark Hamill uh, everyone does yeah. obviously he's dealt with the whole Star Wars thing very well and he's given some great performances over the years as well this is it's a bit of a filler role this I mean he doesn't really get out of the van much until of course it's the end and they are there and watching on TV. It looks like London's burning. It, it's, it's chaos. There's been some sort of bombing somewhere. There's riots on the streets. There's all kinds of suffering. Um, 
looks grim. It, it's spelling out quite clearly that the film is taking place in a dystopia, but it looks almost exactly the same as real life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it looks genuine. I mean, literally people running around the streets around burning cars and stuff. And in 2019, that's a, a serious concern about yeah. what's going to transpire down the line that suddenly the future is a lot less... I mean, it is literally less predictable. So, yeah, there is a prescience to this. And, and even if you see it as an 80s artefact, it, it does prefigure an awful lot of what was going to go down on the street in um, poll tax riots, minor strikes, all of that sort of stuff. Extinction um, Rebellion. Ab- absolutely, yeah. And indeed, this very weekend is a huge climate change protest in London and, and around, around the world. I looked out of my window in my office yesterday lunchtime and what should I see trooping past in the street below but 60 or 70 primary school children right, all in a crocodile uh. supervised by some adults, maybe their teachers maybe adults, their parents um, all holding placards and thinking, yeah, good mm, mm. good for them because when I was that age, I was you know, had some aware, awareness of you know, environmental issues. Yeah. I only knew what global warming was. Yeah, it was a hole in the ozone layer, really, when... when yeah, in the, in the late yeah. 80s. Now, though, people are literally taken to the streets to, um, to protest about this. And uh, the, uh, the young will hopefully deliver the old from... Uh... Well, we'll see. See, that's your problem. <laughs> Are you saying that I'm a cynical old sour person? I never said you were old. Believe me. <laughs> Believe me, I'm getting on. It's the mind plays tricks these days. Anyway, we cut to, uh, from the van, to once more in his underwear. We have, yes, Leonard Rossiter in his underpants on an exercise bike. Yeah, and that is the, the ne plus ultra image of the Mind. British bureaucrat. <laughs> Leonard it's Rossiter true, yeah. in his pants. On an exercise bike. Yes. Peddling fruitlessly, get it going nowhere, looking pissed off. Uh, he does seem to be organising some support, though, for the victims of the bomb attacks. He's clearly the, um, the bureaucrat at the hospital. And he rings an actor that I don't know the name of, but I recognise from... Brian Pettifer as, uh, as Biles. And who do you think would be cast in his role in 2019? Mackenzie Crook. David Mitchell. No. Yes, he would. No, David Mitchell is not weedy enough. The reason really? the reason Brian Pettifer was cast is because he played a schoolboy in If, and he played the same character. Oh, right. But Biles is the one who gets picked on and gets bog flushed. Yes. Gets lowered down into the the toilet and has feet tied to the system. God, I don't want to watch that film because it just reminded me of bloody practical. Be... I went. To, I spent six years at boarding school. Mm. It's. It's deliberately much more old-fashioned. There's people being caned. So it's more Tom Brown's school, school days um, yeah. era. But they, but they, you know, they go out into the, the town and they steal a motorbike, and it's okay. It's very late sixties. Mm. It randomly cuts between black and white and colour. Yes, that sounds a lot like my prep school days. That was predominantly black and white with the occasional flash of colour, mainly when Doctor Who was on. Did they, did they not have sound in, in your day? Because you said you're old. I mean. Yeah, it was, been, we had un- no electricity. He's been, he's been unscrewing his leg for My secondary school, I remember... In my day! <laughs> I remember my chemistry teacher trying to heat the laboratory by turning all the Bunsen burners on. It was that cold. 
I remember something similar, strange enough, in the chemistry lab in my school. Except I was at a private school, and we I was at a private a, we school. We should have been able to afford the coal. Yeah, we didn't turn all the Bunsen burners on there because that's really dangerous. Yes, I know. I was pe- I had my coat on because we, we wore suits as the uniform. I had my coat on, my hat on, your hat on, <laughs> your top hat. It's <laughs> like my woolly winter hat and my school scarf. Really? All mummified up, so it was just my eyes peeping out. In the classroom. In the classroom, with my gloves on, writing down my notes. And the, and the only mm. part of me that was real that you could see was my eyes. Yeah, I know. And we were educated in um, a porter cabin in the grounds of the school, because they ran out of space. It was just like, this is what our parents are, are working for to put us through. Anyway. Oh, well, my school fees are paid by the taxpayer. Good man. Um, so David Mitchell... It's there's, chaos, there's, there's chaos at the gate of the hospital with lots of casualties coming in from the bombing and well, yeah. The porters, the porters are striking about having to work overtime. Well, hold your horses. You've skated over possibly one of the most important people in this film, which is Marsha Hunt. You're looking at me blankly. Nurse. Oh, Nurse Purcell. And she is a phenomenal woman. And I'm not just talking in this film where she's an incredible beauty in this film. Do you know much about Marsha Hunt? No. So there's a famous image on the front cover of, I think it's not Cosmopolitan, I think it's called Queen magazine. And it's of Marsha Hunt with her huge afro, naked, taken by David, what's his face? The Daily. Thank you. Marsha Hunt was Mick Jagger's girlfriend. Oh, okay. Hence why her kissing a character called Mick and falling for him I thought was quite interesting. She's she's done she's had an amazing life. Look her up on Wikipedia. In this film, she's stunning in this film. I mean I'm sorry to be the, the town goat, but my god. Such a pity she didn't do you know, many more films, but she appears as the nurse on the other end of the phone call that um Roster's flunky makes and heads off to try to contact Miller. Miller, who is represented just by sticking his hand out the door. That's yeah. another little um, impersonal, disparaging, you know, you're a minion, go away, my work is much more important. And he's, he's blathering nonsense about this generous project, while outside, you're quite right, all the, the uh, coffin dodgers are coming in from the, uh, the latest bomb attack. Um, the porters uh, don't want to work overtime without sufficient compensation. He's got it in for unions in this film. He's got it in for everybody. Well, he does, yeah. I must and say. it's not... That he's got it in for unions. He's got it in for people who abuse their position. The jobsworths, you mean? It's unions holding injured people to ransom. Yes, that's true. There's a, there's a big difference there between that and striking for pay and conditions. But he should have balanced that with a with a um, a positive union representative. But there's no positive administrator, are there? There's no positives Every, everyone, in this film. Ev- everything is extreme. Everything is a caricature. Mm. It's a political cartoon. But he's basically just pointing and going, that shit, that shit, that shit. But it's all, all aspects. Universally. All everyone, mm. all groups have extremes of their own. Mm. There's no one side being better than the other. I just think a bit of balance wouldn't have gone amiss here. It is balanced. Everyone's terrible. It's, it's a balance. Yeah, everyone's terrible. But I think, can we not get some people who are, you know... I mean, the only positive character is, is, is Nurse... Purcell. Purcell, who 
says she wants to continue Mick's work at the end of the film. And I thought she was, I thought, yeah, she'll be a positive character. But, you know, this is the sort of film that would be recognised in the 18th century, the 19th century and the 20th century. This is a sort of a tableau of, of, of horrors mm. filled with British character actors. Once, once the Union guys have been bought off, basically, we cut to another. But what have they been bought off with? Was it the, uh, the promise of a hot breakfast? <laughs> Bacon and eggs. <laughs> yeah. We cut to the hospital DJ. DJ, and in another moment of, oh, it's you. It's that guy. It's, it's, it's Richard Monty. Griffiths, and he mentions that there's been a preemptive nuclear strike somewhere. That That's... is, it's it is like the end of the world. It's like yeah, it's like this is in the same continuity as Mad Max. Yes, absolutely. That this is coming the day before. Richard Griffiths would be, of course, in uh, with Nell and I, and I think that film is a countercultural statement, an 80s countercultural product, and indeed quotes Hamlet at the end as well. Mm. I think with Nell is obviously much more successful in its intentions. Griffiths fine in this film. He's I've always found him a, a, quite a charming actor, actually, quite cuddly. Um, yes, he's uh, his so the most likable role is I think Pie in the Sky. Oh uh, yes, where yes. he plays the the lovable eccentric detective turned restaurateur. I'm quite partial to a bit of that show, actually. Well, then again, I'm quite partial to a bit of Bergerac on occasion. I watched the first episode of Bergerac when it was repeated a while ago, and it was cut to ribbons. <laughs> was that because there were radio um, tracks being played at times? No, or? I think it was to insert an extra ad break. Oh God! I had no idea what was going on. I was very disappointed. Hmm. Should dip into some of the later ones. It's not. They've probably been cut to ribbons as well. Well, yeah, if they're being put out on the same channel. What were you watching? Men and Motors or something like that. Men and Motors has been running for about fifteen years. <laughs> was it? Guns? No, I was watching on BSB. Gun, guns and Ammo Channel. <laughs> no, it was on. I can't remember the Drama Channel. Is there a Drama Channel? It's a channel that's just called Drama. Oh God. And they show a lot of crime shows and a lot of sitcoms. They've been repeating 2.4 children. Porousness of some of these channels is quite suspect. They show the two Ronnies on the History Channel. <laughs> they show 2.4 children on the Drama Channel. Yeah. And um, I quite like the idea of the two Ronnies being seen as as you know being on the History bookshelf, as if yeah. they are as if they're completely real historical figures. <laughs> It's more, but it's, they read the news. It's more that people don't watch the two runnies to be entertained. They watch the two runnies as like anthropological studies. <laughs> this is what people laughed at in the yes. late, later part of the 20th century. Um, this film contains a number of candidates for potential Doctor Whos. Uh, Robin Asquith? No. Uh, Frank Grimes? <laughs> Crowden, do you think? Crowden was considered, yeah. yes, he didn't want to do a long-term TV part. Griffith? Another Griffith, but I think Griffith he, he has only ever been sort of thought of. Yeah. He was never really offered the role. Of Just, it's likely larger-than-life actors. I would have quite gone for Graham Crowden as a, a sort of Tom Baker-esque doctor. I, I, even, again, the most sort of likeable, cuddly Graham Crowden role is in Waiting for God. Mm. The sitcom set in an elderly care home where he's a retired accountant who after decades of living life like a sensible grown-up he's just going off on bizarre flights of fantasy claiming he's off to you know climb everest and no one knows whether or not he's actually going gaga 
by just doing whatever he wants because there's no consequences anymore. <laughs> I think his performance in this film, Cran's performance, is odd. I think it's it's suited to the material. He has that monomaniacal gleam in his eye. Yes, he's also got a sort of Scottish Presbyterian preacher aspect yes, to him, uh, standing much. at the top of the the stairs with his arms outstretched, telling everyone to shut up. He can do that, and he's got a good eyeball, a bulging eyeball look, particularly when he starts getting throttled. But yeah, he's not he's not really going to do a small role. I think you get him to. I mean, look at the, what he did in Doctor Who and the Horns of Nymon. I mean, I have to say, he looked at the script there and he took the right choice with that script. Well, the Horns of Nymon is basically a panto. Yes, yeah. And he's playing King Rat, and he's fantastic. And he's eating every line, and he's trying to. Comp- and he actually almost out out acts Tom Baker at his most Tom Bakerish. There are scenes in Waiting for God where he deliberately dials it down, where he says the character is taking things more seriously. Mm. Where he not where he's he has to go to hospital because he's, he has to have an operation, and he says that he's genuinely scared of dying. Fair enough. And it's played much more quieter and much more serious. So it's like he can do that. It's just that he chooses not to, or that he's not playing the kinds of characters where that's relevant. His scene in If is his character is eccentric but totally believable. You think, oh well, it's you know that's the kind of teachers they have at a school like that. He's like throwing people's homework around and asking them philosophical questions because that seems reasonable. It's not, you know, <laughs> you know, boggle-eyed. I want that as my ringtone. G, G, he was phenomenally busy in the 80s. Mm. I think in this year alone, he was in seven productions, six in 83. Uh, look at his IMDb. He and Jill Bennett, who played Macmillan, were both in Few Eyes Only. Wasn't he some naval... He was the first uh, sea lord. He's, yes. in, he's in it near the beginning. And she plays the ice skating coach. Yes, she does. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes, so clearly Broccoli saw this film and thought, hmm. No, because this film came out a year later. Oh. But it's, it's more that these are established, well-known character actors. Yeah, they're going to crop up on the who casting. obviously list. are going to appear, appear in Bond movies because they give the, the, uh, the prestige to the Bond movies. Oh, having proper serious actors. Oh, we've got Julian Glover from the Royal Shakespeare Company as our villain. That'll offset Roger. <laughs> it does, because it's probably Roger Moore's best performance as Bond in that film because he has to take those scenes properly seriously. Oh, I think it's the scenes with B.B. Dahl. I think those are the, the peak of Bond for me. You're a real creep yes, sometimes. The I'll buy you an ice cream scene, I think. No, it, after he's having to talk his way out of having sex with her, and then he starts treating her like a child, which she is. So the boss says, well, okay, well, I could either have sex with someone who's 16 and I'm 80, <laughs> or I'm basically babysitting for an afternoon, which is probably not that bad. And my back's feeling a bit knackered yeah. after that ski chase, so... After, after I watched my stuntman doing all that ski <laughs> yeah. oh, just progressively oh, less work in the Bond films I was all out of pub after walking from my trailer to my chair <laughs> you mean to say it's not him on the skis in the bobsleigh uh, chase sequence I'm shocked to hear it, that it is when there's back projection it is, it is when he's standing still in front of a screen he doesn't ski down onto that trestle table and, and jump off the side of the, uh, the off the mountain That's he doesn't do the great big ski jump at the top. is that what you're saying I'm outraged by this. I mean, Roger is my favourite Bond. Well, my second favourite. 
So after whom? I'm not going to say. We'll save that for the double bill podcast that's coming. Oh, up down of the course, line. yes. How foolish of me! Like a broadcast. We're not calling it that. <laughs> we'll call it. Um, People will tune in thinking it's going to be about bros. No, they won't. No, who are they? No, they'll be talking about. Oh, it's clearly about the best Bond. Well, it's not. We're going to have such fun on that podcast. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, down in the kitchens... There's a strike in the kitchens. It's all not going down well. And as a, as a bit of a shocker, it's the lead character from the Confessions movie. It's Robin Asquith. Yeah, uh, who, who to this day has an air of shambolic degeneracy to his... Uh... I highly recommend Robin Asquith's Twitter feed. I don't, I'm not on Twitter. I, I, he I is... He is fully aware of his position in the show business hierarchy. Mr. CD. But he has worked with everybody. He has a bottomless well of anecdotes about you know, bumping into people, spilling coffee over, you know, Knights of the Realm. <laughs> and it's also done totally without any ego. So, you know, whoops. And it's like it's Confessions of a Film Star. I and mean, that should be the name of his autobiography. Mm. I would read his autobiography because he's, he's worked with everyone. He's tried everything. He's done. He was in If as well. He was a schoolboy in If. He's uh, he's had an extraordinary career. Anything to talk about and, the work. And everyone knows who he is. Well, yeah, but and he gives a perfectly fine performance in this. Have you ever seen any of those confessions films apart from odd clip shows? I don't think I have. No. I mean, he's been in Carry On. There's an awful lot of crap in that those waters, unfortunately. Yeah, but I said Carry On is sort of. One rung above yes, that, but similar yes. kind of vintage. Carry On, I think, is much better written than... Uh, when good Carry On is much better written than the vast majority of the... the um, even but the, the least of the Carry Ons have a few good gags. Yes, it, yeah. Even if they're a bit ropey elsewhere. But I just find it really difficult to imagine a time in which someone would go to a cinema, buy some Kiora, and watch a Confessions movie. Are you that starved of material for your fantasy life that you're going to want to watch Robin Asquith's naked bum bobbing up and down in a bubble bath with some you paint a very vivid picture <laughs> I've seen the clips but anyway good for him for owning it yeah I mean fair play it paid the rent and it is part of British culture whether you like it or not it's yeah. part of the saucy seaside you know he was, the, he was the lead in a whole bunch of movies I mean and they were they were successful fair face cheek or he could call his book that. <laughs> there you go, Robin, if you're listening. And that's that's not a bad choice of title. I just want to make a point. I'm not snobby about this stuff. I read Guy and Smith novels. I know and, you um, do. Uh, I, I don't like cultural snobbery, and I'm not going to sneer at those films. I mean, okay, they might be poorly paid and poorly... What are you looking at? I'm you're... trying to read the titles. Well, you've had a pop at my bookshelves before. Yeah, but Crab's Moon... Crabs Out of Hell. The Crab series are actually very good. The Camp. That's a Kenneth Williams. Um, the Black Fedora and Snakes. <laughs> <laughs> All good schoolboy nonsense. Did you know that um, hedgehogs eat snakes? Do they? Good. Yeah, they start at the tail end. Well, a snake wouldn't want to eat a hedgehog. Bloody hell. I discovered this while reading The Eagle. <laughs> what, last week? Which is appropriate because... Eagle is German for hedgehog. You know, it's just a mine of fantastic nuggets of information in this like, podcast. Oh, dear. 
I think of this podcast as being like James Joyce's Ulysses. Do you? Yeah. That's quite because, aspirational. Because when he wrote Ulysses, he wanted to be able to reconstruct the entirety of Dublin through language. In one day. Well, it depends how fast you read it. And I hope with this podcast that in the future it will be possible to reconstruct my brain. Are you saying I'm Molly Bloom? No, I'm saying your service to requirements. <laughs> oh, I've known that for years. <laughs> I believe that was my last school report, actually. They are striking in the kitchen. Yes, and they're refusing to cook the luxury meals for the private patients. And by they, we mean Liz Smith and... Dan- Dandy Nichols. Barbara Flynn is serving some food because she's a private nurse. When I was at sixth form, I was going to try and get into medical school. And I'm being quite a left-wing chap. I was very uh, pro-NHS and I didn't want to go and work in a private hospital or anything. And over the last 20 years, as A, I didn't get into medical school, and B, I watched some um, uh, ex-students get in, who then subsequently left medicine and indeed went on into things like law. The whole private patient thing has really changed over the last 20 years or so. People aren't... They don't seem to be as outraged by it they're full on board with public health care but at the same time it's no I'll, I'll have some I'll have everything I can get basically the normalisation of booper I think that's a very good way of putting it and it's because people are going into these big companies interns will go into you know huge corporate organisations and on the menu part of the salary package will be private health care mm. it's difficult not to talk about politics with this film because it is a very political film Barbara Flint is serving a single orange to the rich people, and the rich people are a rum lot. Yeah. There's uh, a fascist uh, African president, President Ngami. Yes. Uh, who apparently is a cannibal. A little suspicious of the depiction of all of this. Well, it's like Idi Amin. Yes, it is and, definitely meant to be And um, Mugabe. But chickens in the room and washing hanging up, I thought was... Well, is that not the taxi driver who's saved up for 25 years for his operation? Uh, no, no. That was the uh, the African delegation. They're the ones with the chickens in the room. Ah. But you're quite right. Then to have that taxi driver who's saved up, that kind of put me on the back foot. Mm. So they're not all, you know... They're not all rich types. No. But it makes me wonder, if he's been saving up for 25 years for the operation... For one operation. Probably not that necessary... And where the hell has he been doing taxi rides to? Aberdeen? London cab fares. Well, I'd like to say another shout-out to Marsha Hunt, who's now revealed as being part of the investigative journalism operation. Yes, I mean, she's, she is an actual nurse there, but she's their inside woman. Yes, indeed. And they, um, they, they film through the, um, the Venetian blinds. blinds as Miller uh, visits the patient that they're going to be operating on but it turns out he's still alive <laughs> which is a bit of a, a spanner in his works so the nurse goes outside for a moment and Miller just presses a pillow under his face yeah there are some moments of real brutality in this film that's that's one of the first ones he is filmed doing this they are it now transpires there obviously this team is are trying to get the the juice on this crazy character he seems to hold up a saw and he starts sawing off the patient's head. Indeed. The um, patient, uh, just as a reminder, the patient is played by Sir Alan Bates, 
This is the entirety of yeah, his performance right. in the film. <laughs> he's, no, it might be a bit of a joke. He's on screen for about that. 30 seconds. He's unconscious and laying down the entire time. Nice, nice way to make a day's money. The moment where the, um, the saw is pushed straight downwards, the soundtrack tells you, it agrees with you as to the shock of this moment because suddenly the movie's changed. We're looking, yeah. we're looking at an absolute, we're looking at a balls out murderer here. Completely Tone. crazy. Yes. I've written there. Absolutely. We've gone to, aren't the rich a bit rubbish and, and, and jokey stuff? And then suddenly we've got Graham Crowden. Miller is a psychopath. Yeah. Uh, flat out. Uh, and then we get. <laughs> we have uh, Red, which is Miller's, ca- uh, Mark Hamill's character, and uh, Frank Grimes' character watching footage from a battery farm. And laughing and laughing and laughing. Yes, you're quite right. They're, they're off their heads, by the way. They are high as cars. Oh, yeah. They've been smoking this Afghan black stuff. God bless them. Death sticks. Quite what the point here is, I'm not too sure. We've cut from, cut being the operative word, from Alan Bates getting decapitated to chickens getting decapitated, and this being hilarious. So I'd love to get a, Can you imagine what a Lindsay Anderson commentary on this film would be like? Or even a Malcolm McDowell one. I'd be quite happy with like a ten-minute interview with Mark Hamill on his memories of this. Yeah, yeah. but no, there's much more juice on. Um, oh, absolutely! But I mean, he's the star of the biggest film of all time, and he has a little bit role in this, smoking dope, completely trashing his image, and he got away with it. Yeah, well, that's because <laughs> no one saw the film. <laughs> I mean, even Malcolm McDowell had had heroic leading roles in things. He'd been in, he's, he'd he's, been in Royal Flash. He's, yeah, but in Royal Flash, he's playing a real bastard. In Time After Time, he's oh, heroic, yes. dashing H.G. Yes. Wells, Daredevil inventor and heroic romancer, and well, marrying his leading lady in real life. That old that, scallywag. That's, that's his most heroic, uh, you know... Um, Tom Hanksian role, but in in Royal Flash, particularly right at the start, he where he's doing a big speech of you know Britain and you know he's talking to the schoolboys about you know be a hero and all of this. I've always thought McDowell was miscast as Flashman. I'm a big fan of the Flashman novels. Not that I know what I'm talking about, but um, McDowell in that film won me over because of his ability with slapstick. He's very good at the physical comedy. Mm. And I saw a bit of this in, in here, particularly when he's fooling around on gurneys and, and kicking his leg in the air when he's being reanimated. Who would you have cast as Flashman? That's a real difficult one. Uh, Describe Flashman's type. What, well, kind of, what kind of person would he be on screen? The problem with Flashman is that he has to appear to be an absolute pillar of, of English four-squareness, of the, the, literally a hero for a generation, who is also cowardly a liar a murderer a philanderer an adulterer so he's got there's got to be an actor who can do a Jekyll and Hyde who can be two things at once and and can wear a wonderful moustache and the flashman's very what you're looking very pleased Ian Ogilvy excellent choice yes I just have an image of him in The Return of the Saint being quite uh, glamorous but he plays the flashman counterpart in Tomlinson's school days, in, in oh, Ripping Young. Yes, you're absolutely right. 
That's brilliant. I'd completely forgotten you're looking he, so pleased with yourself. And he's great in that. He is. He's really funny. You miserable little dick. And he picks up the phone going, school bully. <laughs> you're quite right, of course. If he could go with the handlebar... Oh, he, I've, I think I'm yeah, fairly yeah. sure I've seen him with some old-fashioned facial hair and he looks great. That's a very, that's a very, very good point, Jeremy. You've hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> you, see, you, see, you see what I mean? I'm... Inevitably, I'm right about everything. Roll credits. This is it. We can't top this comment. The definitive Flashman. <laughs> but McDowell's very good, and it do, he does yeah, display he a lot of. Um... I'm a listener. It's by this point, I will probably have finished watching Royal Flash, and I'll have done a first take on it. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. And capsule summary, enjoying it? Yeah, quite enjoying it. Hmm. Um, not amazing. I'm not quite sure what I expected, but I'm quite enjoying it. I, I, I think, uh, uh, having just watched the, the clip of Oliver Reed teaching mm. what's-his-name how to be a villain, and yeah. then watching Oliver Reed be a villain in this thing, oh mm. yeah, he's doing exactly how he described it before. He's playing it totally straight, he's not blinking, and he's almost totally expressionless. He plays Bismarck, yeah, and yeah. he's exceptionally well cast. And, it's to- and he's totally serious, mm. because Bismarck is not a funny character in the movie. Bismarck is a, a serious, menacing character. There's a little, little bit more physical comedy in the film. I, I think Flashman is a literary phenomenon. I mean, um, uh, and in the books it's sold that you're reading packets of his diaries. Bob Hoskins is in Royal Flash, and there's a great bit with Der- David Jason. Oh, yes. And he gets smashed over the head with a champagne bottle, which I really liked. But, but yeah, the book's great. And I managed to convince our mutual friend Ian to make his way through the Flashman novels. A good read, to say the least. And some of those novels will never be filmed because they we go places with the political incorrectness that you just couldn't go on screen these days. Well, because they're intended to be artifacts of, artifacts of their times, so they reflect yeah. the uh, the mores of absolutely uh, the nineteenth century. And you couldn't do that now because it's too difficult to, yeah. to do it on screen. And something on page is very different. Something as a visual image on screen. But that's fine. I've got all the audio books and the and the. Who and are the, the audio books read by? Timothy West. Oh, who is excellent? But Rupert Penry Jones has done a couple, oh. which were, were rather good. And the guy who's in Black Sails and is the Bond villain, in Toby Stevens, yes, the Radio James Bond, and, yes. And he seems to be—he's got a thing about playing the major British characters. He's done Marlowe as well. He's done a whole Philip Marlowe collection. Uh, um, not a British character, but carry on. Well, Dandy Nichols is delivering the uh, menu for the day over the radio. The s- She's the got a great face. The special celebratory meal for the visitor of HRH. I just, yeah, she's such a... She has a characterful face, and it's just resting sourpuss face. <laughs> That's one way of putting Every, it. Everything is just... Ugh. I think she is... I think she was loved because she was basically the mother of everybody watching the film. That They went, yeah, we've got a relative like that. Well, she was best known as playing Alf Garnett's wife. Mm. And I think that worked so well because with just one line, she could completely deflate whatever he was saying. Yeah, she's there to demolish him. Mm. And the, the meal is bland beyond belief. It's just, but, it, but it ends with a special treat of a chocolate mint. So the, the whole place is getting a lick of paint. Yeah. And this being a Lindsay Anderson film... The two painters are people you'll recognise. 
uh, someone that you and I have talked about recently on another podcast. Brian Glover. Brian Glover. And if I'm right, it's this guy was in Citizen Smith, Wolfie, his friend from that. Oh, yes. And so Leonard Roster is, is bobbing around the place trying to G people along. And again, he's snapping at the lower levels. He's saying, why didn't I think of it? Because you were a fool, he says to his, um, his little acolyte. And then he bobs off to go and meet the police and the um, representative from the palace. Yes. Now. (laughs) Strap yourself in. Now. I think the intention here is to to say that they are very much freaks of society. That that royalty and aristocracy are just this whole other stratum of humanity. Mm. And they're, they're all sort of weird and, you know, no neck or too many necks or... So... Uh, it makes sense that Lady Ramston and Sir Anthony Mount are respectively a man in drag and a dwarf. Yeah. So we're into... And I say man in drag rather than transgender because mm. my understanding is that the actor mm. is not transgender. He's being paid to dress as a woman. It's not a lifestyle choice, it's a job. Yes. So we're, we're, we are uh, politically correct in 2019. I'm, I'm trying to be. And we are trying to be, but this is clearly meant to be the circus has rolled into town. Yeah. And it's come from the palace, and what the hell have we got here? And so now Anthony Mount, I believe, is played by one of the time bandits, which would be difficult, because, of course, there aren't that many people. He's quite old. I don't know if he would have been too old to have played... um... They are completely oddballs. I mean, it is quite wonderful. They arrive to take part in some sort of planning meeting with Leonard Roster and various police types. And, of course, among the police types is our old friend from Slade Prison. Fulton Mackay. Good old Fulton Mackay. Always a pleasure to see him. And they're planning all the ins and outs about trying to control the the riot crowds. And Fulton Mackay, is, he's got snipers on the roof. And the thing I enjoyed about this scene was the stenographer who's this, this woman sitting in the background with a fag hanging out of her mouth. Oh, yeah. Who's basically completely disinterested in this whole thing, this rabble that's turning up. Meanwhile... Miller, who is supposed to be at the meeting, is instead giving an interview to a documentary camera crew. And he's talking about his favourite subject, which is the future direction of human evolution. <laughs> and he describes how the brain is the most powerful weapon in the world and that man risks bringing evolution to an end because... Man cannot move forward. And as he's talking, he picks up a human brain and he starts chopping it into pieces. And he says, oh, we have to unleash the power of the brain. And he mashes it into a food processor. And uh, it's very important that we, we, uh, we allow the, the potential of the brain to, to be fully unleashed. And he pours the slime into a, a glass and he hands it to the producer of the programme and he drinks it. And it's, this is all done in one continuous scene. It's difficult to watch. I get a bit freaked out by brains. I presume this is a sheep's brain. <laughs> Obviously not a human brain that they've somehow found. I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. This wouldn't be out of place these days on I'm a Celebrity, where they drink all sorts of gunk. <laughs> Drinking a liquefied human brain. They, they, yeah, they eat slices of brain on that show, believe it or not. They do. And I think it's also to indicate that he's off his rocker. But basically, it's meant to be just a gross-out scene. It's meant to show, I think, that such is his... Position is the wrong word. But his the, the image he is projecting of himself, that he is the man of science, he is the expert, he is the, the, the scientific visionary, that he can do something as insane as 
as give someone a glass of liquefied human brain to drink, and they will follow suit. And that they will benefit from it, which they wouldn't. Yes, because Miller has become like a cult leader. Yes, I suppose so. He, it's not you know a cult leader in the, the Mooney sense, but he's, he's definitely the sort of a guru figure, a status. He's playing the alpha male. Um, he has the, he, the, the kind of sexual exploitation of his underling, mm-hmm. the, the speech he gives at the end of the film mm-hmm. about the, the new direction of mankind he has envisioned, the horrifying experiments, the acolytes he has. I think he's definitely a cult leader. Really? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I can see where you're going with that. I mean, are there not members of his own team who die at his say-so? And indeed, they genuflect to him at the end. They go down on one knee whilst he's got his arms outstretched like that. Yeah. So you may be right there. I think I might have missed that. And on the stairs at the top at the riot where he's trying to uh, shout everyone down, he's yeah. they're definitely doing a Moses thing, aren't they? And you said earlier it's the Scottish Presbyterian, yeah. which is probably an inspiration for his performance. But it's it definitely feeds into that whole thing of... He's an Old Testament prophet, a, isn't he? A uh, cult of the technocrat, cult of technology. Yeah, and of course Genesis. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I know people say today that there are concerns about there being a, a kind of cult of science. But the point is that, well, in, in this case, Miller's word is law. Marsha Hunt leans out a window. She pulls in our friend Mick, not Mick Jagger. Mick uh, Travis. Mick Travis into the hospital, and he gets dumped into one of the specimen rooms to hide out. And there's a handy window in that room. And he looks through, and he gets a bird's eye view of the rehearsals for this strange Frankenstein experiment that seems to be about to be performed. And um, we've had Robin Asquith appearing and bringing the uh, legacy of the Confessions films with him. There now follows a moment with Marsha Hunt, which is quite something to behold. Lucky old Malcolm McDowell gets to strip almost naked and then have a clinch with the delightful nurse. Tough day that must have been at the office. There seem to be a lot of Malcolm McDowell films where he strips down to his underpants. There are many Steve Martin films where... Malcolm McDowell strips down to his underpants. You watch Parenthood and you'll notice that Steve Martin has an underpants scene and then watch Father of the Bride and there are several others. I wonder if there's... Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. You're right. Is it when he turns up to the airport? Yeah, because because she's stolen his clothes. That's right. And going off on another wild (laughs) tangent as we rocket past our hour and a half deadline, I was annoyed by the idea that the remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels oh. is going to be feminist now, because the original film has a very feminist ending. Absolutely. Oh, God, don't get me started on that. It's like they only saw the first 20 minutes of the movie. It's like, oh, they're fleecing rich women. That's terrible. Well, yeah, but they're also really vain, and they make a point of not scamming anyone who can't afford it, which is why they call off the bet later in the movie, because it turns out yes. the person they're scamming isn't actually rich. Except it turns out that she's the greatest con artist of them all and fleeces both of them. And, and says Steve and, Martin's a mute. And, and, but I like, I like the, their response, which is Steve Martin's character is furious that he's been conned. But Michael Caine mm. is just impressed to have been worked over by a master. Absolutely. Or mistress, I should say. And he's just... <sighs> yes. I mean, that remake is an absolute... I mean, it's definitely Caine's best comedy and Martin's brilliance in that film. Mm. 
and it's actually a close remake of the Marlon Brando original. Um, Breakdown story. That I mean, it took me a long time to get to see that film, and then I was really surprised to see actually it's really similar. I haven't seen The Hustle, I believe it's called. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do want to see it, but I know I'm going to be really, really angry. Probably at how unfunny it is. And I, as you say, I don't know how they're going to change... They're obviously going to change the ending, because if they don't change the ending, then their mark will be male, and he will have he will get one over of them on them at the end, thereby making it not a, a fantastic feminist tract, which they clearly want it to be. Mm. So they must obviously change it somehow. Just come up with an original idea, for I, God's sake. You know what? I bet they don't change it. Do you think they're not that intelligent? I just don't think that there's enough thought given to no, I don't. any aspect of it. Do you think they just got the original script and did a find and replace on the uh, the he's and the she's? I know that some of the original writers are credited as writing the new movie, and I thought, that's a bit odd. Oh, uh, really? And I checked, and they've been dead for like 20 years. So I thought, all right, so they just reused the script then. And they credited the original writers because they're just reusing the script. Ruprecht the monkey boy? Do you think that scene will make it into the... I think there's a version of that. Yeah, I bet there is. I mean, they can't do that again because that would... I think, <laughs> it's famous. I think they could probably get away with it because it's meant to be stupid and ridiculous. Do you think that scene was a bit of a, a Steve Martin whoosh-up? That smacks to me very, very particular to him. I think that there's something very much like that in Bedtime Story. But when they had Steve Martin do it, I thought, well... Obviously. Okay, now let's fine tune this for him because he's going to be able to do this brilliantly. Mm. And we have Michael Caine in the same scene playing it totally mm. straight, totally serious. Do you want the genital cuff? How he did not crack up. I mean, I'd love to see some outtakes, but but Caine is really good in that film. He just gets just so perfect the 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 tone to and to to be on the screen with Steve Martin of all of people all of people. Caine's doing a brilliantly crafted performance there. There are so many people who they approached about playing those characters before they landed on Kane and Martin. It's ridiculous. Yeah. John Cleese, Michael Palin, Steve Martin was going to be playing the other character, and, mm. and Richard Dreyfus playing the con artist. Then they switched roles. Then Richard Dreyfus didn't want to do it anyway. I can't. I'm not surprised there was a bit of flux behind the scenes because a lot of classics have come out of torturous production. Mm. Paths, I think but, Tim um, Curry's name might have been in there at some point. So when you think of the poster of Kane and Martin raising the glasses towards her, yeah. you just think, how could that possibly be anybody else? Mm. I remember going to see that film. I was I headed to the cinema with my mother and my sister, and they went in to see something else. And I went in to see Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And when I came out, I was raving, saying, you made the wrong choice there. <laughs> you should have come in with me. Oh, was a brilliant film. You know what? It could almost have wound up being like a follow-up to A Fish Called Wanda. You could have had mm. John Cleese and Kevin Kline, mm. Jamie Lee Curtis as the uh, in the Glenn Headley role. Yes, yes. Michael Palin as the um, either the, the Ian McDonald role as the butler yes. or Anton Rogers playing the police chief. Bump his rock character up a bit. Yeah, that could have completely worked. And um, Charles Crichton was offered more movies after Fish Called Wanda. It was no mid eighties, and he was offered more work. Said, no, I am retired. I'm actually retired now I'm not mm. making another film and a great film to go out on mm. very, yeah, made, very made, well made directed. a film for about 30 years mm. 20 years you know doing TV like Space 1999 anyway back on course after Marsha Hunt and, and her Nick 
enjoying a kiss, we head back into the room about the union reps. This film tends to seesaw between the fantasy sequences yes. and the, the how are we going to control the riot sequences. There is a bit of a dead ringer for Jacob Rees-Mogg as the hospital administrator to which Roster reports. Um, and they've also ordered luncheons from Fortnum's for everyone, which are £45 plus champagne and two wines. The acme of class is Fortnum and Masons. Have you ever been in Fortnum and Masons? I have. They sold scorpions in Aspic. Oh, God. <laughs> I took my mother into Fortnum and Masons. Who do you think we met in Fortnum and Masons? Um... Noel Gallagher. <laughs> oh, I would love that. Ronnie Corbett. Oh. And uh, he was very short. I've also seen... Bad temper, was it? I've <laughs> also seen Bill Oddy looking dishevelled in HMB. I think he'd been birding. <laughs> Haven't we all? I, I'm not interested in his private affairs. Yes. Um, Miller finally arrives... And uh, is in conflict with Peter Jeffrey's character, and he calls him a vampire. Yes. Who uses people as raw materials for his experiments. I loved the use of unmitigated blackguard. Um, don't hear that enough. And he, suddenly we're talking about his man remade project, which is kind of. It, it's heading towards. It's a Frankenstein project, this. Yeah. And uh, Miller completely loses it and, um, and storms back. I'm, I'm going to start a new epoch! <laughs> it says in the middle of a planning meeting. Yes, with the the local the, the police and palace representatives. By the way, he doesn't care about uh, anybody at this stage. But Biles comes in and announces it's such a great name, <laughs> Biles. Biles, and it's perfect. It's perfect for someone who works in a hospital. As Indeed, because well. it sounds like bile and piles. Um, Down in the kitchens. The, in the kitchens, they're they're picketing the Fortnum's van. And the representative of Fortnum and Masons is no less than Valentine Dial. And that's a perfect piece of casting. He's he's not in this film enough, actually, I think. Could have done with a bit more of his baritone face. Liz Smith is the one that pans on hips barricading the Fortnum's van. Mm. You would not want to tangle with, oh, no. with Liz Smith. And Robin Asquith is looking his usual shady self. And then, of course, Leonard Roster has to make this work, so he dangles an MBE in front of Robin Asquith. And his tune changes very quickly. Yeah. But um, they managed to kind of settle the uh, dispute by getting everyone to sing Old Lang Syne. A, cha a strange choice. Um, <laughs> Should old acquaintance be forgotten, never brought to mind. Yes. So like settling differences. I would have thought it would be some, more like the red flag or something like that. But, well, um, isn't it, no, that's something that they can all agree on. You're well, not going to get the man from Fortnum singing the red flag. No, that's very true. And indeed, he starts the singing. Yeah. Well, if you, you want to hear more of that voice. Absolutely. That, um, that wonderful, amazing Valentine Dial voice. Good him, evening. Him and Christopher Lee in a I bass off. Having a what? <laughs> having a bass off. <laughs> Please pass the mustard. No, that's Vincent Price. <laughs> Why don't you do an impression of Valentine Dial? That's Vincent Price. That was oh, okay. my Vincent Price impression. Please pass the mustard. Uncanny. I thought Dr. Fives was in the room. Dr. Fives can't speak. <laughs> but if he could. Okay, back to the lab, where the operation is proceeding yes. apace. Um, 
Miller is talking about walking in the footsteps of Galileo, Einstein and Freud. Yeah, he's bigging himself up a bit. There are tables with body parts on, and um, Mick has smuggled himself into the observation area. Well, it's Nurse Purcell who's in there, and the second Mick gets onto the gurney, I'm sure you're meant to think this is not going to end well. You're you're right, but um, he gets off as soon as he's in the observation room drags a piece of meat out from one of the refrigerated cupboards and goes in and hides. Yeah, and again, you're just thinking, that's such a bad idea, when we, we you know, considering where this is going. Given that given um, that he's almost immediately found. Yes. McDowell is doing quite a good David Tennant impression in this scene. The tie, the, the long coat, the shaggy hair. He just looks like someone playing a doctor, like a, like a hospital doctor. He looks convincing as, like, yeah. a doctor. yeah. And we do get a cut back to the, the van whilst he's fighting all the doctors who discover him. And his two chums in the van, Mark Hamill and Kate, are, are um, still high as kites. Yeah. This is, uh, he's really picked poorly when it comes to his, his mates. Uh, he's, he aims his little at tiny sort of um, fibre optic camera at them like a gun as well. And he's uh, yeah. kind of confused by the presence of there being a second film crew there. Yeah. which is the documentary team following Miller around. But he's overpowered and drugged while outside... Drugged by none other than uh, Nurse Purcell. Whilst um, the painters are still waiting inside for their, their other new colour to be delivered. They are. And as the, the dignitaries make their way down the, the corridor, you do have to ask yourself just what a rum lot they are. They're approaching with they are, men in They drag are quite and, the selection. They certainly are. I do think I was getting carry-on vibes at this stage. Rachel Roberts is in there as well from um, the two previous films. She plays the matron there. Ah. Um, yes, they... You can imagine Joan Sims in there, Hattie Jakes, you know, Barbara Windsor. Because I think, I think Nurse Person is definitely meant to have Barbara Windsor overtones in this. She's the one who's, you know, bobbing around the place, being bubbly. It's interesting to imagine the actors replaced with carry-on alumni. Yeah. Because um, Leonard Rossiter's character is clearly Kenneth Williams. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure um, yeah, Bernard Breslau is one of the painters. I would, you know, I'd give the stars of uh, Carry On these bigger roles. Mm. It depends what period of Carry On. I mean, um, Mick Travis is Sid James, clearly. Mm. Mm. Um, Professor Miller, uh, Frankie Howard. Yes, that would be delicious, wouldn't it? I think you're Frankie Howard. Would that be quite right? I'm not sure. Who would Charles Hawtrey play? Biles. Yes. <laughs> so it has to be Perfect. someone weedy. Yes, yes, definitely. Anyway, they're going around the hospital checking out the route and they're uh, seeing various patients, one of which is catatonic. One of whom, is, yeah, one of whom has locked-in syndrome. <laughs> yes. The other is a former foreign minister who delivers the, the Shakespearean dialogue of oh, this, this Eden, this jewel set in a silver sea... This England, and his heart immediately stops and he dies. Yeah, and that's an incredibly jaundiced moment there. I mean, Anderson is really, you know, he's looking at the state of Britain because Britannia Hospital is meant to be Britain. This is a microcosm of, of Britain and it's basically a, a powder keg. It's all the different people and the classes shoved together in one place and then it's all going to blow. And you've got these technocrats wandering around promising the future. You've got one of the nurses on one of the super wards watching the shuttle take off. 
as if that was going to prove to be a great new, you know, humanity's leaving the planet. This film was in 82. Four years later, Challenger blew up. Mm. That definitely puts an edge on, but would have put an edge on shots like this. But um, the, the foreign minister is played by Arthur Lowe. Of course. As you say, his final son. And they go to the, the super advanced ward, the Kipling ward, paid for by Freemasons, packed with every modern innovation in patient care necessary. However, it's currently out of use due to a shortage of cleaning staff. Yeah, it's literally empty. Interesting that it's named the Kipling Ward, of course. Because, I mean, you couldn't have named it Dickens, because Dickens was always very left-leaning. Yes, absolutely. He was a socialist before the word yes, was coined. On the, on the side of the poor and trying to get things changed in London. In charge of the Super Ward is the nurse. Yes, the nurse. It's Nursey from Blackadder. Oh, Patsy Byrne, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's literally who isn't in this film. It's ridiculous. And um, Ben and Phyllis, the, the Ben is Robin Asquith, Phyllis is um, Joan Plowright, meet up with their third uh, uh, fellow trade unionist, Tom. Yes, who's wonderfully degenerate. He's, he's, he's been squeezed into a suit. He really Looks has. really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and they have an etiquette lesson. And I love the irony of that, that they're having to teach etiquette to Lady Olivier. Yes, I didn't notice that. You're quite right. I thought the scene went on too long. But yeah, they, they have to practice bowing and curtsying and saying honour to meet you, Ma'am, and, and all of this. And it's the preposterousness of the protocol and the pageantry. And, and the fact that they have to say the phrase in such a specific way as well. Yeah, that sounds like garbled English. That they can't just say it normally. Because you can imagine that Robin Asker just saying it normally. So, Honour to meet you, Mark. Not that he would say it in this film. No, but, but, he, you know, but, but yeah. I imagine yeah. Robin Asquith, CBE. <laughs> um, Confessions of the British Empire. There you go. Now the title for his autobiography. Well, I don't know why it would be, because he wasn't Flashman. Well, no, that's true. But I think he probably would have liked to have been at least one of his characters. Anyway, outside, the we seem to have switched, by the way, to to what these riots are. There's, there seems to be two going on. One is the um, protest against the Idi Amin figure who's currently lurking in the hospital. And the other one is just a general social protest. Yeah. And they combine at the gates of the hospital. And the two guys in the van make a couple of terrible mistakes. They try and film what's going on mm. from the roof. Um, but... Frank Grimes' character falls into the crowd while Red is simply dragged out and into the the mass of people and we never see him again. Hamill has a great reaction shot. As, the, as they're referred to as the media lackeys of the establishment. They are meant to be investigating a serious problem at the hospital, the fact that Dr Frankenstein's operating there. But it's the filming of them that I think rubs the, the crowd up the wrong way. That yeah. They're going to be sold on as just a story. So, yeah, the dignitaries are basically stuck in the hospital. Rossiter, oh no, it's Lord Anthony tries to call Buck Palace, gets Battersea's dogs home and a minicab firm, which I thought was just quite amazing, <laughs> and then loses contact with HRH, who is on her way. Mm. The lights are literally going out, there's a power problem, and there's a nice little juxtaposition of, of what the police guy thinks is what should be done and what Leonard Rossiter thinks should be done, which is he goes to the boiler room whilst Fort Mackay is saying, um, uh, get the riot squad in. 
which he does. Mm. And so down into the engine room of Britannia Hospital itself, they go to the engine room, therefore, of the country. There's a fairly slapsticky moment with a huge spade yeah, that Roster Potter, picks up. Potter braining the um, heating engineer. And killing him. Yeah. So now we've got a murderous Dr. Frankenstein in the hospital and a murderous bureaucrat. A bureaucrat determined to keep the wheels of tradition. Whatever. Yeah. Um, the power failure has meant that... Oh, dear. Um, the head being used in the operation has gone off. Yeah. Because, as Miller says, it's beginning to pulp. It's, he's got a nice turn of phrase. And that means that someone else needs to replace this rather... And, and with a single stroke head. using a meat cleaver, off comes Mick Travis's head. Again, quite a development. In front of Nurse Phyllis, by the way. I'm surprised that... Nurse Purcell. Nurse Phyllis. Nurse Purcell, thank you very much. Who, uh, the head is literally carried out the door. Yeah. Uh, leaving the dead body behind. And Nurse Purcell promises Mick, wherever he may be, that his work will go on. So she picks up his miniature camera. Yes. Whilst Ben and uh, Tom decide they've had enough of this and decide to walk out and join the strike outside in solidarity. So there is a little bit of a sloppiness here because in the previous scene they had told Leonard Rossiter that they could be counted on and their men could be counted on to to help weather this this period. And then in the next scene here they're going, nah, forget it, we're out, off we go. And I think we don't see them again until the, the finale. Well, I, I do like as they go, um, Potter shuts after them. You wouldn't know Karl Marx yes. from a toffee apple. <laughs> Absolutely. I liked that line. And again, I have to say, that's, I think that came out of the mouth of Mr. Anderson himself. Mm. The operation proceeds in the operating room, and whilst outside, the rioters riot some more. They demand that the private patients are, are um, discharged, and Potter goes out and he makes a deal mm. that the private patients will be discharged. In return, they have to allow ambulances through from the bombing and they're military ambulances but we see that they are in fact containing disguised dignitaries and HRH herself carried in like a mummy in a sarcophagus yes absolutely it's, it is quite something to see I mean it goes from being fairly amusing where you see the guy in all the ermine and the black rods suddenly coming out of, you know, taking bandages off and the disguise but then as you say a gurney is then wheeled in with what, some sort of coffin in it, which is lifted up, and underneath, cobwebbed, mm. is um, is the Queen Mum wheeled out for special occasions, like the like the best doily. Our old our old horse racing fan, uh, Queen Mum, much beloved at the time. Old Ginny herself. Oh, um, and she gets up and she she meets the dignitaries and all of this, whilst horrors abound in the operating theatre. Yeah, uh, the operation's finished. Um, Miller <laughs> finishes it off by like this, he finishes sewing on the head yes. and bucks through the thread. That is a lovely moment. Yeah. Um, and it comes to life, and it's awake, and it bites into his hand, and he can't get it can't get the head off, and then and then the head starts separating from the body, and blood spurts out. And it was at that point that when I was watching this, aged seven or so. My parents turned the tape off, having realised, finally, that this probably wasn't going to be like a carry-on film. <laughs> I'm 
the, I'm the impressed part, you watched the it. The part so. where the severed head starts spurting blood. Yeah. So the whole thing about decapitating heads previously hadn't given them cause for concern, but it was the whole yeah, blood thing. It's, it's like a it's like a cartoon. Yeah. I think it's a little bit David Cronenbergy. Oh yeah. Body horror type stuff. And unfortunately, that means that not only has this man remade project gone down the pan, but he's got to move to his um, his Genesis project. Well, that's before you know the the head comes away, um, and Miller manages to get it to uh, uh, unleash the bite with um, by chopping it in the face. Meanwhile, the headless body starts strangling Macmillan, who smiles. Oh yes, as yes. Her master's creation kills her and Miller says so much for the humane solution the dream is over we must now give genesis to the world uh, the private patients are discharged yes and Gami is carried out through the front gates well, the front gate through his seats through his sedan chair yes and disappears into the mob to be to suffer um, the same fate as presumably the, his various victims so we have a murderous mob we have a murderous Leonard Rossiter and we now and we have a murderous Graham Everyone is just—it's con- the whole, yeah. the whole of society is just consuming itself. Yes, now. the uh, dignitaries head out with the with the queen to the new block, uh, and the riot is getting ever more violent. Police with riot control gear are, are on hand. There's a shocker of a moment where one of the rioters, in a oh yeah, recreating the famous moment of the offering of the posy to a guy with a gun, gets punched in the face. Yeah. From the point of view of would this happen in real life, we're well beyond that now. That would never happen uh, because, not least, it sparks a massive riot and a counterattack from the crowd. But that's that's Anderson's political comment. That's what the the state is. This film would be made redundant about a few years later when Gilliam did Brazil. Everything that this film does, Gilliam does better in Brazil. Brazil, if you ask me. Brazil pushes it much further as a fantasy. This is still yes. this still looks like the real world. Yes. It's it takes it into a Gilliam world, but the whole thing with the craziness of bureaucracy, the madness of bureaucracy, the dreamer, and then the the, the brutal crushing of the dream at the end of the film. Yes. Anyway, that riot breaks out and um, the national anthem plays over the top. Which is brilliant. Stylistically it's it's a powerful moment then you get lady what's the face getting a cabbage in the face yeah which is again very enjoyable as they they scramble to get into the the miller center the, the keys jammed in the lock yeah um and leonard ross is trying to be polite to uh the queen mum apologizing and saying have to try turning it this way <laughs> and they all burst inside and fall over each other which again is you know slapsticky carry on moment and the door seal behind them while miller is in the lecture theatre with this very cold futurist environment sitting on a, a high chair on the side of the stage with lighting from underneath and in the middle of the stage is the black pyramid of yeah he, he's clearly in a, a synth duo from the early 80s he's probably uh, soft cell I'd say if he had a keyboard and a microphone that would be the top of the pop studio, really, wouldn't it? I am a pet shop boy. <laughs> and um, the rioters burst in slow-mo through the main doors of the Miller Centre. Mm. Suddenly we're getting some nice directorial touches. Whilst all the dignitaries are piling into the main lecture theatre to be regaled with this new demonstration. But um, 
Miller, hearing what's going on, goes out and, you said, flings his arms around and says, Stop! Pardon? Come forward in peace. I will show you what the future means. Indeed. And what follows is clearly a, uh, a manifesto from Anderson, would you say? No. No? I think this is the director speaking, or at least the writer. No. no. I don't. But he's saying that mankind will be... It's, it's, it's got to evolve. That you are all a bunch of murdering, argumentative... But he's people. the same... Miller is in no position to lecture anyone about morality. That's true. There's a point, though, where he goes from, actually, I agree with what he's saying, to, oh, you're now saying that people are going to wind up in a matchbox. That's, that's the moment we go. And that's the whole thing about him being a cult leader. It always starts very reasonable, mm. doesn't it? I'm afraid it does. Are you taking control from foreign powers? Yeah, that mm. seems like a good idea, doesn't it? When you start listening a bit more and start questioning what you're hearing, that's when it starts getting insane. Yes. He does say that mankind has created great wonders but indulges in war, destruction, inequality and superstitions but that the brain needs to be freed from the body, from the prisons of morality and evolution and he has created such a being of pure brain a human of the future who is neither man nor woman. People of today behold your future and the glass of the pyramid falls back and we see a pulsating human brain in the middle of electronic and clockwork machinery. And Miller says that this is what 100,000 times more powerful than any human brain. And in five years' time, it will be out of date, replaced by a microchip one-eighth of a millimetre square. And in 15 years' time, the entirety of humanity will fit in a matchbox. Indeed. Moore's law. And now, hear its voice. And there's a moment, and the, the whole of the audience has been, the whole of all the characters in the movie, everyone who's still alive, has been crammed into this one room. And everyone is frozen, you know, ast- astonished, silenced by what they're seeing and hearing. And the camera is panning over the faces. And they're all jumbled together as well. Mm. And the voice starts to speak, and it starts to recite the what a piece of work is a man soliloquy. How noble in aspect. Yes. How like a god. How like a god. Yes, How like uh, a god. How strange of Lindsay Anderson to prefigure uh, something that Bruce Anderson would write uh, a few years down the line. Bruce Anderson. Bruce Robinson. Thank you. Different, um, um, different uh, soliloquy. No, it's not. What a piece of work is man. That's what with no, uh, yes, says Yes, you're quite to right. It, 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 yes, you're right because uh, with no actually finishes it. Yes. But it's just, yes. It just gets stuck on it the gets locked. How like a god, how like a god. And the, this, we just cut to black as he continues to repeat the line. So is this a science fiction film? No. Um, there isn't enough science fiction in it. Is this a um, political film? It's political satire. I would call it a, a political satire. It is a very black comedy. Black as ichor. Definitely. I'd say the comedy is is difficult it's, to find. I think Needs it's because gags. it's so dark. 
yeah. the tone of the humour is so dark that it just stops being funny. But it's clearly a lot of it is meant to be funny. I mean, there is stuff that is broad and funny. Do you think it's devastatingly funny? As qu- quoted on the poster. Well, no, because I, I, I never listen to critics, and I don't, no one should ever listen to Rex Reed. Rex Reed is a fruitcake. Yeah. But I, th- I think you're right. I think what I appreciate about this film is, is clearly the, um, the political edge to the director. And as you say, I really like the fact that he, he doesn't really take a political side. He just goes, you're all as bad as each other. He's not offering answers. No. He's, and the best, the best satire doesn't give a solution. It's saying, it's, it's lampooning the situation and explicating it in the most digestible terms. I want you to say a certain film. What's the best satire of the last five years? Oh. I know what you're going to say. No, you, d- you know you would never guess what oh, I was yeah. going to say, because oh. I was going to give a film that was a lot older than that. Um, but the last five years... Yes. Um, oh, Mad Max Fury Road, I don't know. Death of Stalin. Oh. Oh, okay then. Now that is of a similar ilk to this film, I yes. think. Yes. There, no, there are no gags... There is no shying away from the horror. It is still strangely amusing and funny. It's got a cavalcade of, of wonderful actors in it. And it's clearly making a point. But it's a prestige production and it's had a bit of money thrown at it. Whereas back in the day, in 1982, Anderson... Well, he did have to scrabble around for more cash at the end of this, didn't he? He was like... He was, I'm sure he was asking for about another million to finish off the film. And it's just slightly less polished... But the, the place where Anderson is coming from, I think, is the same place that Iannucci is coming from. That's not taking any particular sides. Although, would you say Iannucci's probably a bit more left-wing? Iannucci is very establishment. Come on now. Really? It's got an OBE. Mm. I don't know. I wouldn't say... Uh, you, know what his new, you know what his new film is? It's um, David Copperfield, isn't it? Yeah. And you can't get more establishment than a, a Dickens adaptation. But I want to see what he does with it. From what I gather, aside from casting Race Blind, because David Copperfield himself is played by... Mm-hmm. I've forgotten his name. That's terrible. The actor the actor who plays David Copperfield. Dev Patel! Oh, right, yeah. Okay, that's a fairly obvious choice, I would have to say. Um, he's... I mean, yeah, that's... If, it, if you're casting Race Blind, he's a very obvious choice. Yeah, but you know, he's a great creative guy. I, I want to see what um, what he's going to do with that. It's, Although it's already, it is a bit disappointing. It has already been screened, and apparently it is quite middle of the road. Oh, uh, okay. That's a disappointment after Death of Stalin. See, he's not as, uh, well, we'll not as revolutionary see. as you think. We'll see. Either die here or will live long enough to become the villain. And based on... You're quoting Christopher Nolan. It's the best line in the film. It's the best line he's ever written. Lindsay Anderson was determined that he was going to die a hero because this film pretty much ended his career. <laughs> he shot uh, two, two, two music films with Wham. Yes, I heard that. And he, is, he said he did it for the money, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, he did make a, a final fiction film, um, I think 1989, which was Lillian Gish's last film, I recall. Oh, the Whales of August in 1987, um, co-starring Betty Davis and Vincent Price. Oh gosh, that's a quite a duo. And Frank Grimes. So, do you think 
what is your final take on Britannia Hospital? I like it a lot. Um, it's it's just angry. Mm. It's angry about how the Britain has collapsed in on itself. How all the factions are just becoming smaller and meaner and more motivated by self-interest. And that the only forward-thinking solution on offer appears to be that of cold technocracy. You could be talking about 2019, couldn't you? Yes. Why do you think we keep talking about Brexit? Um, I think that the... The 1980s didn't start really until a couple of years into the 1980s, what we think of the full-on Thatcher era. And this film strikes us as being influenced a lot by the winter of discontent and the the real breakdown in British culture and how suddenly we were all only a couple of strikes away from rubbish piling up in the streets, the dead not being buried. Mm. Anderson's coming out of all of that in the 70s. He's got the angry young man background of the the, the the early 60s and um, he's got very little budget and he wants to do a, 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 a speculative little bit of crazy yes. fun so I think this film doesn't really work I think the script could have done with a polish I think most of the performances are fine great great cast I think it's got a fairly crazy edge at the end and I think if you really wanted to to if you were going to go into this film with that sort of ending, he should have gone for it big time in a much more crazy gonzo manner. The switch between kitchen sink union and the management of riot stuff, then flipping literally into the next scene with a mad professor and brain surgery, that's a big tonal jar. I don't think it does this film a lot of favours. But I do appreciate his, um, just his sourness. Thanks very much to Anthony for making time for this podcast. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts and Acast, with more than 70 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. However, until next time... Alike, a god. Alike.